This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with scientist and writer John Kabat-Zinn. He's the founding director of the Stress Reduction Clinic and the Center for Mindfulness in Medicine, Healthcare, and Society at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. I spoke with him on March 26, 2009, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in the studios of WGBH in Boston. This interview is included in our show, Opening to Our Lives, John Kabat-Zinn's Science of Mindfulness. Download the MP3 of that produced show at onbeing.org. Watching the talks you gave at MIT and at Google, and that's oh. kind of the, the kind of conversation I want to have with you. Are they on the uh, They're on, on, on YouTube? Is that what you Yes, mean? I got them. My mm-hmm. producers found them online. I didn't even know the MIT talk was on. Yeah, and I just loved it. And uh, I actually I'm think glad. we could put that on the air and it would be a public service and you don't need me. Oh, but here we well, are. We're going to have you. a conversation about it. Um, and, you know, here we are at this moment in our culture where there's a lot of things have come to a head, I think. And, yes, and so I think that's kidding. I think that's what we're going to do. I want, I want to talk right. about the things you, you've done for years and that you know and that you think about and talk about all the time, but focus it a mm-hmm. bit in terms of where we are. Um, and I think Sounds it'll be very me. helpful for me <laughs> and, I, and well, eventually for our listeners. Um, yeah, you know, just before we get started, mm-hmm. even I, you know, I wrote this book a few years ago called "Coming to Our Senses," right. and it, 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 I meant it, <laughs> yeah, both literally and metaphorically. And um, and you know, now in a sense, we're seeing the uh, fallout from yes. years of not really. Um, being in touch with the full dimensionality of what we were doing. Yeah, that's right. We we've been doing a project that started online, and I, I actually see this conversation as 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 part of its trajectory of which we're calling mm-hmm. repossessing virtue. Um, Wonderful. And we're trying to Wonderful. trying to look at moral and spiritual aspects of um, the economic crisis and living through it and mm-hmm. beyond it. And um, Wonderful. maybe we'll talk about that a little bit. I've been, okay. We've gone back to people. I fo- I'll follow your lead okay. in some way. Yeah. And- and All then right. you should also just to say, I mean, uh, I'm one of those kinds of people that if I get talking, I can just talk. So, yeah. Well, uh, I'll, feel I'll, free to just you know just get in there with a crowbar. And I will. I will <laughs> wrench I, me in a different direction <laughs> if you need to. I'll do that. But uh, the great luxury of this, um, of first of all having an hour of radio that's not yeah, broken up by wonderful. commercials, and then getting to have. And a much longer time to speak is that I can let you go on sometimes, and then I can later. Well, dis- okay, <laughs> I, I will try not to abuse that. Privilege. Okay, um, let's see. I'm getting a hand behind the glass. I just have to correct the pronunciation I gave you before. Ire. All right. Um, I'd like to start with you. You know, I interview um, theologians and scientists and artists and physicians, all kinds of people. I, I always start the interview. Um, by asking whether there was a religious background to your life, to your, to your childhood. Hmm. Well, I suppose there was some background that could be called religious to my childhood, but it's not what one would imagine if one were to hear the words religious background. Okay, well, what do you uh, think of? In the sense that, you know, I was born into a... a a family that's ethnically Jewish, but that uh, didn't practice at all. I was not bar mitzvahed and uh, never set foot in a synagogue until I was 13, and some of my friends from school were bar mitzvahed. So I was not brought up in the Jewish tradition, although I certainly, you know, 
recognize myself as being Jewish, but I didn't have that kind of conventional um, exposure, so to speak, to a particular tradition and uh, and what its uh, doctrines and practices were. Okay. On the other hand, uh, I grew up in New York City in Washington Heights uh, in a very sort of diverse community in the in the uh, late 40s and and early to mid 50s and uh, so I grew up although I was Jewish I grew up with a lot of Catholics and so mm-hmm. I went to a public school where you know most of the kids were Jewish or not Catholic and and then mostly I played in the streets with kids who were Catholic and uh, had their own ideas about uh, uh, Jews and other faiths and so forth, and I didn't take any of it personally because I didn't identify with any of it. But but as I got older, it it had a very interesting texture to it, and uh, and I was certainly conscious of that growing up. Okay, and then you um, studied molecular biology. Is that right? As an undergraduate, yes. Also? Well, I went no as an undergraduate. I I went to Haverford College okay. outside of uh, Philadelphia when it was a very small school with only 450 students and uh, 100 professors. So it was really quite unusual. And I came from uh, the Lycée Henri IV in Paris, which was one of the top three lycées in France and Mm. still is. And uh, so I, I, I went to college when I had just turned 16 Mm. which which put me two years ahead of the curve. And uh, so that was a very interesting experience, and I wound up majoring in chemistry, not biology, okay. uh, because I felt like I wanted to get as you know, grounded a foundation in both physics and chemistry before I went into bi- the, the life sciences, biology, and so forth. Okay. Uh, and I also took a kind of informal, not formal, but informal second major in comparative literature. So I was, you know, reading French and German and Italian and mm. doing all sorts, and of course Eng- English and doing all sorts of. Uh, things at the interface between the sciences and the humanities. Mm, sounds wonderful. <laughs> so how and when did you start thinking about or did you discover meditation and mindfulness? How did that happen? Well, um, I've done a certain amount of reflecting on that, and and some of it involves even the kind of impossibility of defining too highly any one trajectory in answer to a, a question like that. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, the indeterminacy that you get into with the uncertainty principle in quantum <laughs> physics. It's not that we don't tell ourselves all sorts of stories right. stories about where we started out and so forth, but they're, often they're more stories that lull us to sleep or make us feel comfortable than anything else. Mm. Uh, Sometimes I begin by saying that, uh, you know, I was born into a a family where my father uh, was a very uh, highly recognized uh, world-class molecular immunologist and what was called in those days immunochemist. Mm. Uh, And, uh, again, uh, won lots of awards for his work, had a tremendous reputation, um, was a scientist, scientist, as many of his colleagues put it. One of his 
his uh, students win the Nobel Prize. And then uh, my mother was a painter and still is to this day. And uh, she's turning 95 in a couple of weeks. And uh, she was as prolific as a painter as my father was in writing scientific papers and training graduate students and postdocs and so forth. But she was completely unrecognized and didn't even participate, I don't think, in an art show until she was about 93 or something (laughs) like that. So I grew up in the classical sea piece knows two cultures, the culture of science and the culture of art from, I mean, basically I was born into that. Mm. And so uh, as a child, I was, you know, it's inevitable that you have your eyes open and you're kind of taking the lay of the land. And some of it involved seeing these different ways of knowing the world, the world through the eyes of a painter and through the uh, eyes, if you will, of a of a biological experimenter, chemist, and and they're very different. And and so I think from a very, very early age, on some level, long before I could actually articulate it, I was interested in the unity behind the divergences between those different ways of seeing or epistemologies. And that just developed as I got older, which is one reason why I was so interested in uh, the arts and as well as the sciences when I was in college. And the year that I spent at the Lycée in Paris was like a renaissance year for me because, you know, although I'd gone to Stuyvesant High School in New York City and got a 100 on the New York State Regents exam in geometry, I found that when I went into the 11th grade at at the Lycée in Paris, I was already five years behind in geometry. Hmm. Hmm. And every other subject, including English, I might say. So it was the first time that I ever really felt like I was being completely challenged and my intellect and my heart just soared in response to the experience. (laughs) And that's why I went to college at the end of that year rather than the dreaded possibility of going back even to a really great elite high school. Right. So all of these threads, I mean, the reason I'm telling you this is that all of these were actually extremely domain uh, germane, I'm sorry, all of these threads were extremely germane to uh, finding uh, my way into the meditative practices and contemplative practices because in a sense I realized in retrospect later that they were uh, a potential path for unifying what what uh, Wordsworth called discordant elements mm-hmm. and, you know, sort of like between the arts and the sciences. But but did you – I mean, it, you didn't know that. You didn't even know about meditation. You probably hadn't well, heard Well, when I was in college, I, I, you know, I took a world history class and I learned about the, uh, the uh, Desert Fathers and mm-hmm. uh, monastics and so forth in the Middle Ages. And there was a, there was a resonance there even you know, when I was like in my mid-teens uh, or, or mid to late teens. There was some idea that, oh, you could go off and and Descartes actually, at least I don't know if this is true, but at the time I thought that Descartes had taken 10 years and just gone someplace and sat in silence. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, Pascal is famous for saying all man's problems uh, stem from his inability to sit alone in a room by himself. So there was this notion that um, – that silence and reflection could actually tap into deep sources of understanding and wisdom that don't come necessarily in the traditional ways to the intellect. Mm. 
Okay. Uh, and and so that was just again a, a little sort of thread in this whole thing. And then I think you've said that you you actually started to meditate at MIT, right? Yes, which is, I did. Which is such That's an interesting right. sentence. <laughs> <laughs> that in itself, especially is kind thirty of, uh, years ago or whatever, thirty five years yeah. ago. Yeah, uh-huh. and and the story which I wrote up in Coming to Our Senses, in part because I put a lot of my own personal story into Coming to Our Senses, and some is in. Some of it's actually in various books because I want people to understand that when they come to meditation that it doesn't mean that you give up being a person and you become some kind of, I don't know, um, transparent weirdo of sorts, Mm -hmm. but that you change your relationship to who you think you are as a person and in particular to the story of who you are or think you are. And it seems to me that you you spend a fair amount of your time – and I, I suspect as much in your speaking as in your writing, kind of demystifying meditation and mindfulness. And also, mm, you know, it, it's saying that it's not squishy. In fact, um, presenting it as, as you found it, as a, as a spiritual technology that has a, some, some kindred, that, that can be akin to um, some of the creativity and openness to experience that that you love about science or that science Oh, absolutely, enables. and mm-hmm. art. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, I stay away from even the word spiritual. Uh, so it's not so much that I'm into demystifying meditation as it is as I'm into trying to make it so commonsensical to people that they will slap the side of the head and say, well, of course, why the hell didn't I know that like 30 years ago? Right, right. That makes total sense. right. Because it's often freighted, the, even the word meditation is freighted with so much cultural baggage and so much really ideological baggage and uh, sort of belief baggage that the essential beauty of it is often really not apparent to people until long after they've somehow wandered into the domain of it. And my feeling was, you know, um, if, if what the Buddha said was true and that this is a path that is potentially leads to the freedom from suffering. And if everybody on the planet is basically suffering, why shouldn't it be accessible to virtually everybody on the planet as opposed to those people who self-identify as, say, Buddhists or as, you know, yogis or people who are into this or that? Mm-hmm. And so I tried to create a kind of uh, glide path into meditation that would be so commonsensical and accessible and based on what people really need and also fear and are challenged by that uh, that uh, we could at least empirically test whether if it was framed in that kind of way, regular mainstream Americans would take to meditation. And in mm-hmm. fact, I think the proof after 30 years is pretty much in the pudding that we do. Mm-hmm. So I mean, let's let's do that. Let's talk about this as a what what you know, as common sense wisdom, and and let's talk about it in the context of our culture, uh, right now, where there's a lot of stress, okay. a lot of uh, <coughs> I think uh, um, there's a lot of stress, and there's perhaps a heightened awareness that we haven't been as mindful or aware. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's a moment of. Um, of, of interesting positive possibilities as well. I agree with you. I think that it's what is called uh, uh, sometimes a, uh, a, a really fecund moment for learning. Mm. You know, that it's, uh, there's, there's some kind of profound 
learning available to us at this moment because we get to actually see and feel, and I would say globally most people, in certainly the first and second worlds, get to see and feel how much the consequences of certain kinds of lack of paying attention or of uh, unbridled greed in the form of, uh, you know, capitalism doing its thing uh, leads to a certain kind of disaster that has effects on virtually everybody Mm -hmm. uh, who are in some degree innocent to uh, what was going on with, say, the banks and the mortgage companies and that kind of thing. You know, um, I don't. I don't think that you talk about Buddhism as a religion, and certainly the Buddha didn't consider himself um, a, no, um, <clears throat> a religious leader. Um, well, he didn't. He wasn't a Buddhist, or he wasn't a Buddhist, sure. right? Yeah. Um, and Jesus wasn't a Christian either. Um, right. So uh, I've said that on the air before too. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> on um, TV, actually. but um, but I but Buddhism is one of these, uh, you know, like we can call it a, a religious and spiritual tradition. Um, well, there's no question about yeah, it. Yeah, and 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 so so we've been um, talking to a number of people for this project. We're calling repossessing virtue. And one of the people we called up was Sharon Salzberg, who's been on the program yes. before. I'm sure you know her. Yeah, and, we're close friends. Right, and so this is one of these moments where. Um, you know, one of the things that's clear to me as we look at uh, as the economy started falling apart is the trust we had placed in in things that we that we assumed were logical and rational, and in fact were yes. highly irrational. Um, and then yeah. also how at a moment like this, so Sharon Salzberg makes a comment that in fact is so much more reality based than our economic expectations and behavior for the last few years. She said, you know, as a Buddhist. Um, you know, change and suffering are inevitable parts of life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's something we kind of forgot in these boom years. And we are so shocked mm-hmm. that things can change and that we can suffer. Um, so, you know, what I'm interested in, and you just talked about greed a, mi- a moment ago, but I think what you know about is, you know, that's kind of an easy word to use, but but what is behind that? I remember yeah. I've been reading you the last few days, you know, you, you talk about this greed to make our is is kind of this impulse to make ourselves feel better, right? It's part of the human condition, and it, but it has these terrible, sometimes quite evil consequences. So, mm. talk to me about what we've been doing as as you understand that, both um, through the science that you do, the and the work that you do on stress. Just how you've been well, kind of it's analyzing Well, it's a this. very broad question, so I'll have is. to start somewhere and just thread yeah, my way around, that. and you can help guide me. Okay. Um, maybe I should start for the purposes of the listening audience by by saying a little bit about what I do and then expanding yes. the the context of it to include uh, the present situation that we find ourselves in in this country and globally. Uh, so for the past 30 years, and we just celebrated the 30th anniversary of it, um, in 1979, I founded a clinic at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center in Worcester, Massachusetts, called the Stress Reduction Clinic. And what we do in that clinic and have done for 30 years now is what's called mindfulness-based stress reduction. And it's basically taking uh, fairly intensive Buddhist meditative practices and offering them uh, to uh, mainstream medical patients and people who are experiencing stress, pain, and illness in their lives. 
and doing science on it so that we could carefully monitor outcomes and then begin to do randomized clinical trials and then even neuroscience studies and and biological mechanism studies so that we're beginning to sort of develop a body of evidence, not just at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center, but now throughout the world because this model has spread around the world uh, so that there is a, a really quite significant and very rapidly growing base of evidence that's suggesting that how you pay attention in your life actually can change your life and your biology and your brain. Mm-hmm. And and it's in a direction of liberation. It's in a direction of freeing ourselves from some of the profound automatic pilot habits that we can fall into that create a certain degree of blindness, insensitivity, a drifting out of touch and a kind of zoning along on autopilot that can last for a very long time, especially if uh, your expectations basically are being fulfilled over that period of time. So uh, when you don't have any cause to question what's going on, as you were suggesting in quoting from Sharon, and things are going in a direction that you describe for yourself as desirable, in other words, your 401k is increasing in value mm-hmm. every year and so forth. It just seems like, yes, all is right with the world. And you can pay your mortgage payments and you know maybe buy a bigger house and on and on and on that this is the way it's supposed to be. And we tell ourselves that this is the way it's supposed to be. And then there are, as Sharon was suggesting, these rude awakenings that happen sometimes. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be the collapse of the economy or the stock market. It can be as simple as... Um, you know, uh, something happening to one of your family members right. or she to said yourself. You, the phone rings. You pick up the phone. You have some news about an illness. And your whole and, life is different. And your whole different. life is different. Yeah. yeah, whether somebody died or it's a cancer diagnosis or mm-hmm. whatever it is. But we live in a kind of sonambulant expectation that everything will go on the way it is. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And that is uh, certifiably uh, absurd. But that doesn't mean that we won't uh, lull ourselves into a kind of uh, happy trance with that until uh, we're taught differently. Mm-hmm. So to come back to your question, in a sense, we're all in the same boat here now, globally really in some way, but let's just speak about the country and maybe the first world, European countries and, you know, North America, uh, Asian, mm-hmm. you know, even, you know, all industrialized right. countries, all of a sudden, uh, you know, Nobody wants to buy their exports because nobody feels rich anymore. And a lot of it is psychological. I mean, the world hasn't changed that much in the past six months, except that what's changed is no one trusts anybody else. Nobody has any confidence that the banks will actually, you know, uh, do what banks are supposed to do. In fact, they mm -hmm. weren't doing what they were supposed to do. They were selling you mortgages. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, and if you were selling a mortgage, if you were a bank and you sold somebody a mortgage for a house, you'd want to make sure that they could pay the payments, right? Because otherwise, you'd be out on a limb. But if you are very clever, you can take that mortgage and cut it up into a million little bits and sell it off as derivatives. And then you have no risk. So then you're motivated to sell houses to people that may not be able to afford them because there's no downside for you. So I want to ask you a couple of – just zero in on a couple of um, 
questions about what you know about stress. Um, okay, so you get let, let me just tie that okay, in though. Right, so you get right. my point that yeah. that that once you start behaving in that kind of a way, you're creating all sorts of conditions that are going to generate a lot of suffering. Right. And, okay. Mm-hmm. And so that the stress, if we loop it back to stress and mm-hmm. the whole thing about mindfulness-based stress reduction, is that the stress really has to do with. Uh, wanting things to stay the sta- to stay the same when they are inevitably going to change, the law of impermanence uh, basically uh, rules the universe, mm-hmm. and so things are never constant; they're continually changing. And if you want to hold them a particular way, you can do it for short periods of time at tremendous cost, but ultimately things change. Right. And if you don't recognize that, then you're going to create a lot of suffering for yourself and other people. So if I think about um, the place we're in collectively now, I mean, individually, many of us are experiencing stress either through changes in our job security or, you know, financial situation or things happening to people close to us. Um, And there's also, I think, I think what's especially difficult about the present moment is there's kind of, there's also anticipatory stress. There's Will it get worse? The other shoe. Right? What yeah, will the happen other shoe next? waiting for it to drop. So, you know, so something I thought was very interesting as I'm reading your work is that, you know, you said um, that perceived stress is just mm-hmm. as bad for you as real. Yes. Uh, you know, it, so, and that you said um, your body doesn't know the difference. <laughs> Their body doesn't know that the other shoe hasn't dropped, right? right. If you're spending, right. so talk to me about that. I think that's very interesting. Well, if you're telling yourself a story about uh, how horrible things are, even if the story is not quite true, your body is going to relate to it as if it is true, and it's going to pour stress hormones into the bloodstream, cortisol, and the like, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know your heart rate will go up, and your muscles will contract, and you'll be, you know, uh, either in a fight or flight mode or in a freeze mode if it's really terrifying, and uh, all of this uh, without really having there be a major threat. It just the thought in the mind is enough to generate that threat. Mm-hmm. Now, if you don't, if you're not sort of really intimate with thoughts as thoughts, then every thought that flits through your mind uh, is potentially perceived as actually the truth. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, the thought that uh, uh, I'm not as good as she is. Okay? okay, there's the thought, or people don't like me, or uh, I will never succeed, or uh, I'm over the hill now, or it's all downhill from here, or I'm too old, or I'm too uh, heavy, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. All of these are just thoughts, but they're not related to as thoughts by most people. They're related to as the absolute truth. So one of the ways in which you can actually deal with all the stress that we're facing, both the real events in our life and also the, the... imagined ones that we create in the mind is to actually begin to differentiate between thoughts and other aspects of reality. So thoughts are really events in the field of awareness. And the more you can see them as events that arise and pass away, just like your breath arises and passes away and moves into the next breath, 
all of a sudden you have a completely different perspective on them. And rather than being a prisoner of them, you then have the uh, a lot of ability to actually let them come and go without being caught in the emotional charge of them. And a lot of these thoughts are freighted with very, very intense emotional reactivity. But And, and I think that something that... Um feels counterintuitive in this culture, even though maybe it shouldn't, I mean, maybe it's logical, is part of the discipline of mindfulness or the intention of it is, you know, I think that our, our intuition is, I feel afraid, I feel, you know, I feel terrified, I feel vulnerable, yeah. to to want to f- turn away from those feelings. and, and right. what, But what you do is the opposite, right? You, right. you d- detach from them by by facing them, right? I wouldn't say detach. Uh, that's a tricky word because we don't right. want to give people the suggestion that uh, that they should dissociate mm-hmm. from their feelings because that is a kind of uh, a coping strategy that a lot of people use when they're experiencing intense trauma. Mm-hmm. And while it may be effective to save their life in a particular moment, it is not an effective way to live your life. And so very often... Um, People will feel like what we're telling them to do is to, you know, don't trust their thoughts or feelings, Mm -hmm. which is not what we're saying at all because you have to, you know, trust yourself and your thoughts and feelings are part of it. But to not see them as uh, true. You talk about actually just evidence, and you talk about being in wise, compassionate relationship with your pain and fear. Yeah, and so let's unpack that for okay. for a moment. If whether it's thoughts or whether it's say a, a, an intense sensation in the body that we would label unpleasant, like pain or something like that, uh, you can do a little experiment, and your listeners can do it even as they're listening. And that is, if you are in a state of anxiety or of pain or distress of any kind, you can bring awareness to it. And a good place to start is in how the body's feeling in the moment in the present moment, and then ask yourself, is my awareness of fear actually frightened in this moment? Is my awareness of the pain actually suffering in this moment? And when you do that little experiment for yourself, you'll discover that it may not be. Hmm. In fact, it's very unlikely that it will be. And so you've already given yourself another place to reside, so to speak, another dimension of your being rather than being caught up in the reactivity around thoughts or intense sensation or intense emotions. You can be the the field that knows these the arising and passing away of these thoughts and sensations. And, and there, there's no suffering. And that there isn't there, by the way. It's here. It's in the present moment. Mm-hmm. So that's why mm-hmm. mindfulness is really grounded on the cultivation of intimacy with the present moment because the past and the future, although very, very important, are really uh, constructs of uh, our ways of thinking. And the only time, the only moment we ever have in which to learn or grow or heal or make anything happen or express love is the present moment. And that usually is the one we ignore the most. (laughs) Here's another, um, let's say, superficial, perhaps a a confusion or contradiction. I mean, mindfulness is not just, is not about thought, right? I mean, your book, you're very beautiful. Oh, you mean the word mindfulness sounds like it's about thought. It sounds like it's about thought. Meditation, I think the the stereotype is it's about sitting 
thinking. your head. Right. Your your beautiful long book that you wrote just a couple of years, you know, coming to our senses, and you've even pointed yeah. out that that for the Buddha, that you know, the mind is also a sense, and it is all about exactly. being embodied. So talk to me exactly. about that and how that can make a difference in a moment like this, where the world around us is, is so frightening. Yeah. Well. Uh, where to start um, we we really haven't been educated to realize that uh, there's a certain way there's a certain uh, faculty that we're born with that's as, that is at least as powerful as any of the other faculties that we think about or know uh, that we have like the ability to think uh, we've never been trained in the ability to pay attention, for instance. We get yelled at in school for not paying attention right. or when the teacher thinks we're not paying attention. Actually, we are paying attention. It's just to something other than what's on the blackboard or whatever. So attention and awareness are deep interior human capacities that never get any training or airtime or attention. What gets all the attention is thinking. And so when you begin to cultivate intimacy with these other capacities, it actually balances out our remarkable capacity for thinking and also for imagination and creativity. A lot of the creativity comes out of the stillness of awareness in not knowing. So rather than just sort of keeping tabs of what we know, uh, it's really helpful to be aware of how much we don't know. And when we know what we don't know, then, well, that's the cutting edge at which all science unfolds. Right. You've also said so that scientists make the best meditators because they're comfortable yeah, well, with that idea of wanting to know what they don't know. But, you see, it's all a question of thinking. I mean, the word mindfulness, for instance, I completely agree with you. Anybody who's naive to hearing it is going to think, oh, yeah, that's some kind of cognitive manipulation. Yeah. So I like to point out that in all Asian languages, at least I've been told this, I don't know all Asian languages, but in, in, in all Asian languages, the word for mind and the word for heart are the same word. Right, so right, when you right. hear the word mindfulness, if you're not in some sense automatically hearing the word heartfulness, you're misunderstanding it. Hmm. And mindfulness in any event is not a concept. It's a way of being. And it's a way of being awake. It's not a big deal. It's just that we're never taught that this is part of the human repertoire. So w what does wakefulness mean? It means resting in a kind of awareness that is so stable that it's not thrown off by the comings and goings of events within the field of awareness so that you lose your balance when things go this way and things go that way. Um, but you actually stay grounded when things go your way, as we put it. That doesn't mean like all of a sudden you you know turn into some kind of obsessed egomaniac narcissist. Mm -hmm. And when things don't go your way, it doesn't mean that you have to rocket yourself or spiral into depression and uh, hopelessness and a sense that of despair. Uh, but very often, if we take it personally, because the emphasis is on the my way, when then we do take things personal and we feel like our successes say that we're a good person and then by extrapolation our failures say that there's something wrong with me, that, this, that I'm no good. And both of those are wrong. 
You were good before you were a success, and you're good even though there are failures and they are a normal part of living. Uh, what goes up also comes down, whether we're talking about the stock market or a ball that you throw up in the air. And if you mistake uh, what you think is the reality, uh, what you think of as the reality for the reality, then you're going to suffer because you're attaching the story of me, myself, and my successes and my failures to something that's actually quite impersonal. But, and that know, we can it, generate a certain – we can easily generate a certain kind of collaborative conspiracy around it so that the bottom line of my 401k becomes like, you know, my worth – and we even have the phrase in, you know, the, uh, you know, sort of personal economics, my net worth, right? Mm -hmm. But our net worth is infinite. It's got nothing to do with the bottom line on some, you know, and I'm not knocking it. I mean, we all need retirement accounts and it would be nice <laughs> right. if we have more money in it rather than less. And it would be nice if we could afford the houses that we live in and pay for it and that our banks really were not, you know, in some sense trying to uh, – uh, so maximize their own returns uh, that they forget that this is, you know, one body politic that we're part of. If the heart just goes off and does its own thing or the liver, then basically you've got atrial fibrillation and cancer, and that doesn't do the body as a whole any good. So it's the same for banks and mortgage companies and insurance companies, and, and we've seen them run rampant, but that's because the head for a very long time said, these organizations and organs, so to speak, of the body politic, they can regulate themselves. They don't any, need any checks and balances or cross-regulation. Let's just let capitalism do its trip. And that's, that's the rude awakening as we, we now see the disaster that follows in the wake of that kind of thing. And the Buddhists got it right from the very beginning, if you don't mind my looping it back to that. No, no. And it's, this is not about whether you're a Buddhist or not, but they called these three toxins of greed, hatred, and ignorance the core foundation of suffering. Hmm. And it's greed is wanting, uh, you know, just an endless, endless wanting more and more and more so that no matter how much money you get, the CEOs are getting, you know, sort of salaries that are like beyond imagination and hmm. they it's never enough. Or hatred, like, you know, find somebody else to be the enemy or the cause of all my problems and then, and then just direct anger and hatred towards them. Or delusion, which is living in this kind of misapprehension of reality but thinking it is the reality. And all of those are at play so much nowadays that it's almost as if the dark glasses are coming off and every single one of us is getting to see a kind of morality play, if you like, about right. what happens when we stop paying attention and when we don't come to our senses. And so the body politic, whether you think of it as the earth and the environmental crisis and the potential for global warming to really, you know, wreak havoc on the planet for, you know, thousands of years to come and all the future generations, or whether it's the economic crisis or whether it's the social crisis or the education crisis or whatever it is, these are all different organ systems within the one body politic. And we need to start, as the cells of the body politic, start taking uh, responsibility for our own little particular piece of it. And I think if the citizenry, if you will, did that and didn't sort of bifurcate into Republicans and Democrats or conservatives or 
liberals and so that, you know, some people like are invested in the president failing because then our team mm. will look better. Right. I mean, this is this is really insane. It's like a cancer of a certain kind growing inside our own body. And it's the, you know what it is? If it, it's the cancer of ignorance. It's the cancer of ignoring certain aspects of reality because we're so driven by uh, the ethic of more for me. Right. And me understood in a very small way so that actually if you live that way, you're, 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 your own children may not even talk to you right. or may feel like you've betrayed you know, generations to come by, by that particular uh, display of uh, really not only mindlessness but you could say heartlessness. Right. I think Joseph Goldstein, who's also a great Buddhist teacher, talks about the heart-mind as a better yeah. translation. I just want to tether this a little bit. Um, you know, uh, here's the thing. Um, I, I think what you said about the, these, and I, I hear this from so many different directions in so many conversations I have. That I, I really yeah, it think must of, be very interesting for you to see all in the echoes are talk to all these people. But you know, I think that I, I've come to think of meditation and mindfulness and and even and yoga as. Um, spiritual technologies that, that, that these traditions have mined and, and kept alive and deepened. And, and as you say, they, they don't just present themselves in, in the modern world to Buddhists. They, they present themselves as, as keys to, um, to sane living. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, but here, but, and yet, um, if, if you want to talk about these, these spiritual tools, um, or just these tools of cultivation of your mental states, um, as accessible to to real people in our time. I mean, you know, I've, I've wanted to ask this question to someone for a long time. It seems to me you might be the quick person to ask. I mean, the Buddha left his wife and child behind, and and oh, I'm so glad right you that and up. devoted himself utterly to this pursuit of enlightenment. Yeah. Um, monastics. A lot of the studies. I don't know how much you've been involved in these, but studies that I know you're associated with where they've yes. studied stress on the brain and they've studied monastics and they find that yes. they've really changed their minds. But, you know, they don't pay the rent. <laughs> they don't live in fear Absolutely of being laid right. off. Absolutely right. Okay. They are renunciates. In a <laughs> right. way. That's, they've renounced the uh, conventional world. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, uh, but anybody who thinks that's easy should try it for a bit <laughs> okay. and you find like there's as much stress on that side as there is on any other side. Greed, hatred, and delusion are equal opportunity employers. So just right. thinking of yourself as a spiritual person or renouncing the world, easier said than done if you're talking about tapping into some deep dimensionality of peace, well-being, genuine happiness. Mm -hmm. But that said, uh, your point is very well taken and uh, and and so the real challenge is – uh, how do we do it living in this world yeah. without having to sort of abandon wife and children or husband and child or whatever and going off for the sake of our own small-minded, if you will, enlightenment? One of the things, I don't know if you know this, but my wife and I wrote a book on mindful parenting yes, I do. about yeah. mm -hmm. 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we say in there is, like, of all the spiritual practices, you know, no matter how severe the monastery and how arduous the particular practices associated with it, um, 
Living with children is probably the most powerful spiritual practice that anybody could ever be engaged in mm-hmm. if you open yourself to it that way. Spiritual practice because, and challenge. Well, <laughs> well, all spiritual practice is challenging yes. because you have to deal with your own mind. Uh-huh. Never mind, You don't need to worry about other people in a way because your own mind is turbulent and distressed enough. But when you have children... I like to look at them as, when they're little, as little live-in Zen masters that are sort of parachuted into our lives to push all our buttons and mm-hmm. see how we're going to work with, you know, the challenges that they throw at us in addition to, of course, having to put food on the table, pay the rent, uh, build a career, uh, have a loving relationship, you know, <laughs> right. uh, that is sustained over time and isn't merely mechanical or perfunctory. And this is like a really tall order. Mm-hmm. So what are Americans better at, better at than taking on the full challenge of like all of, you know, all of this kind of stuff? So I really think that in some way this is the best monastery. It's not a conventional monastery, but you know, uh, this is the perfect environment in which to cultivate mindfulness and liberative, you know, uh, clarity, wisdom, compassion, uh, working with the tools at our disposal rather than thinking I'll leave my family and I'll go off and be in a cave and get enlightened and then I'll come back and rescue everybody. And you even say that meditation doesn't have to be about finding an hour a day. No, it's like the real meditation practice is how you live your life from moment to moment. Mm -hmm. Now, that's easy to say. It's not so easy to do. The key thing about, and the Dalai Lama speaks about this a lot because it's so true, the key thing about meditation practice, and I think you used the word discipline at one point some ways back, Mm -hmm. the key thing about it is motivation. If you're not motivated to do whatever is required to be in the present moment, you won't be. Thich Nhat Hanh likes to say the reason we need to practice mindfulness is because we're practicing mindlessness virtually 24-7. Right. Practice getting angry every time you're frustrated. Well, you get better at it. Practice makes perfect. It really does make perfect. So if you get better at boredom and get better at anger and get better at fear and get better at worry and get better at uh, absorption and get better at multitasking, you'll become like uh, a master of never being where you actually are. Mm-hmm. And if you sum that over a lifetime, you may miss the most profound elements of your own life and then blame it on, you know, busyness or the internet or email or something like that. But we're the responsible agents. So so these are choices that we can make, but you have to have the motivation to do it. Um, Mindfulness is very, very simple, but it's not easy. I've heard you, though. Uh, because it requires a certain amount of work to right. develop. But, you know, I've heard you when you when you spoke to um, some employees at Google. Um, you yes, you sometimes that. will just, you'll, you'll give people a way to think about how it would start, what it would feel like. Would you do that? Mm-hmm. Would you just... I'm happy to, as exercise. long as those of you who are driving in your cars don't close your eyes <laughs> or go off into outer space. This is about dropping in on the present moment. So what's in front of you through the windshield, very, very important. Staying in your body, very, very important. Mindfulness does not require us to close our eyes. but And there are thousands of different ways to cultivate it. But one very good way is to feel... Uh, a sense of your body as a whole. Now, it turns out that although we're never encouraged to do that, everybody gets that almost immediately to one degree or another. You just see if you can put your awareness 
in the whole of your body so that it includes the entire envelope of your skin and uh, a sense of the head above the neck and shoulders and the whole of your body, no matter what posture it's in. And just see if you can feel whatever the sensory field of your body as a complete unit is in this moment. One of the things that you'll notice is that uh, within this universe that we call our own body, uh, there are certain features that are hard not to notice, one of which is that it's taking air from the outside and bringing it into the body. And then it's amazingly expelling that air so that another uh, breath can come into the body. And we call this, of course, breathing. And it's doing itself. It's not like we're actually doing it. We say, I'm breathing. But if it was up to that you that was saying I to breathe, you'd have died a long time ago because you would have gotten distracted and forgotten. Whoops. (laughs) Whoops. Dead. So uh, the brainstem takes care of that very, very well for us. And what was being suggested here is that we just feel our breath. Not think about it, but feel it. So, you know, again, the term that is used for the kind of um, med- was kind of what you've brought to medicine, you and others, is the mind-body connection, the mind-body interface. But really, that's not quite big enough, is it? I mean, it's, it still sounds like they're two different things. Because, yeah. see, again, there's this kind of paradox when you, you, you use a term like Good awareness, point. awareness, yeah. which again sounds like a mental activity, but what you ask people to do and how they become aware is to drop into their bodies and their senses. Yeah, drop into being. See, we call ourselves human beings. That's a big cliche, but we're more like human doings. So we actually haven't had that much experience in inhabiting our own being. It's kind of almost foreign territory. And as soon as we do, we want to fill it up with something. Even if it's, say, looking at a sunset, and then you got to talk about it instantly. Oh, did you see, you're seeing this. Is it as beautiful as I think it is? And right. all of a sudden, you're not seeing the sunset anymore. You're in your thoughts about the sunset. Hmm. So whatever it is, our thoughts very often wind up carrying us away from the heart of the matter. And what what these, as you put it, technologies or intrapsychic technologies, whatever you want to call them, offer us is a chance to continually return to what's deepest and best in ourselves. And it's not something you have to get by going to Harvard or working in the vineyards for 20 years. You've already got it. Mm -hmm. And the body's a big part of it. So we often don't appreciate that the body does what it does, whether it's digest food or eliminate waste or any of that, until something goes wrong. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, my God, I spent 40 years uh, being able to urinate, and all of a sudden now I can't. And then you begin to realize, whoa, do you know what I'm saying? I took that for granted. I take for granted that my eyes work, that my feet work, that I can balance, that I can walk, that I can run, that I can hear. I mean, we're just like walking miracles, but we are so out of touch with it. And that's where the metaphor of and the literal way in which we keep coming back to our senses. Mm. Hearing is a fabulous uh, path for cultivating mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Just he- now, I'm not talking about listening. Now I'm talking about hearing. 
So we're not going out scanning for good things to hear, but just letting whatever sounds are coming to us be heard. A lot of the time, we just tune them out. What we see, a lot of the time, we tune out what we're seeing, especially if we don't like it. We can hug without really being present. We can be out of touch in so many different ways. We can be on autopilot. And so the practice of mindfulness, whether you're doing it in some formal way, meditating in a sitting posture or lying down doing a body scan or doing mindful hatha yoga, but the real practice is, as I said, is living your life as if it really mattered from moment to moment. The real practice is life itself and coming to all of those senses and hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, and also we could say minding, Mm. uh, which is another way of saying Awarenessing. I, I actually like to use awareness as a as a present participle. What we're doing is actually awarenessing, okay? Mm-hmm. And it puts us in touch with a whole different dimel- dimension than thinking. There's nothing wrong with thinking. Right, it can be right. incredibly creative, it's and it can also thinking. be incredibly destructive. Mm-hmm. But awareness can't be destructive. I think you know. There's a place, I think I wrote this down, uh, there's a place in your book where you you just really put a, put a fine point on, on what's at stake, you know, that, that any mm. moment in which we're not aware, any moment that we're not attentive to is, is lost. I mean, and, there, yeah, and there's abandoned a, your own life. <laughs> I mean, there's a, and you, there's a quote you have from Thoreau and Walden, only that day dawns to which, to we, which are we are awake. awake. Yeah, it was just that is house home site the other day bringing my German publisher there with his son. Mm. You know, we make pilgrimages to Walden Pond to visit Thoreau. Mm. Only that day dawns to which we are awake. It's the third to the last line in the whole book of Walden. And, uh, you know, this is a realization that he had that you can and this was even in the 1840s in Concord, which we would might think of as idyllic. You know, he was describing the the, the residents of Concord and the farmers is living lives of quiet desperation. So mm. it's not just the email and the internet, that, you know, and the World Wide Web that are carrying us away from ourselves. It's the it, human condition. <laughs> yeah, it's the human condition. Uh-huh. But I like to point out, if we have a moment for this, Chris, there's that we call ourselves Homo sapiens sapiens. That's the species name we've given ourselves, and that means from the Latin sapere, which means to taste or to know, the species that knows and knows that it knows. So that means really awareness and meta-awareness. And it would be nice if that were actually true, but I think it's a little premature to call ourselves that. And now maybe we need to uh, live ourselves into owning that name by Mm. cultivating awareness and uh, awareness of awareness itself. And that let that be, in some sense, the guide as to, you know, what we're going to invest in, how we're going to make decisions about where we live, where we're going to send our kids to school, how we're going to be at the dinner table, whether we're going to watch five hours of TV or whether we, uh, you know, fill up all our time, whether we're going to take our bodies and our children and our parents for granted or whether we're going to live life as if it really mattered moment by moment. Mm-hmm. And that's not to put ourselves in a straitjacket. That would be horrible. This is not some kind of prescription for uh, more stuff that you need to do in order to be happy. This is getting out of your own way long enough to realize that you already have the potential for tremendous well-being and happiness right here, right now. Nothing else has to change. Yeah, and again, Even, it, hmm, sorry. 
Oh, just even if you're dealing with a very, very difficult time or dealing with some kind of chronic medical condition, there are ways to be in relationship to it that are more generous to oneself, more accepting, more loving, uh, more kind, and they actually can accelerate and uh, and uh, deepen processes of healing and uh, you know and growing. And you do work with people who are facing death, right? Yes. Who? who? Yes. Well. Might say everybody's facing death. Yes, yes, I mean. more imminently and certainly. Than <laughs> yes, I mean, we work with people with a wide range of different chronic medical conditions, as well as just you know your basic stress of living, mm-hmm. which is just getting worse and worse. Yeah, uh, and our perspective is that you know. It's not about dying. It's about living. So can we live our way into our moments? We None of us know how many more we have uh, to live. But if we were to start making use of them, one thing it does is it really slows down time. When you're in the present moments, time really stops. Well, that's interesting because time is something none of us have enough of now, isn't it? Exactly. None of, nobody has any time. That's huge. So we <laughs> fill up our lives with everything so that we couldn't possibly even taste the present moment. But there are ways to learn, and this is what the cultivation of mindfulness is. You drop into the present moment. It's like conventional time lengthens. Mm. And you are you can be so much more in touch with, say, let's say, um, and just take an example, how easy it is to leave the house without making eye contact in the morning when you're on your way to work. It doesn't actually take any more time to make eye contact or say goodbye or hug, you know, your children or whatever it is. But we often feel so rushed that we're blasted out of the house. I was going to say, I've been yelling at my children for 10 minutes Goodbye, to I'm get out in of the here. car. Goodbye, I'm out of here. Out of your... Or yell at them I'm to get sure in the car. I'm not sure they want me to make eye contact. Well, exactly. And so we're so stressed that we're stressing out the children and, you know, sort of like, or whatever it is. that. Uh-huh. But it actually, and the mind says, I don't have any time. I don't have any time. I don't have any time for this. Mm -hmm. But actually, that's all you have time for is this because there's nothing else than this. So when your four-year-old can't decide which dress she wants to wear, that's not a problem for you unless you make it a problem for you. That's just the way four-year-olds are. Mm -hmm. And uh, the more we can sort of learn these lessons, the more we will not be in some sense running towards our death but in a sense opening to our lives. And there's a huge distinction between the two. And all the scientific evidence is suggesting that when you choose life in the way I'm talking about, your brain changes in both form and function, your immune system changes, your body changes. I mean, we start to really take care of what's most important. And there are very, very tangible results at the level of the body and the mind and the heart. And most importantly, our relationships. Mm-hmm. with the world and with our loved ones and with our own bodies. I want to spend I want to spend a little time Is this making any no, sense? No, it's to great. You yes, saying? it's great. We're having a real mm-hmm. conversation. You've been saying some very interesting things about the digital revolution. Um that <laughs> that we are saddled with a stone age mind in a digital world and that has huge repercussions. Um Something interesting to me is as I talk to people about 
taking stock of some of the larger implications of what's gone wrong in our economy and how we want to live differently beyond this mm -hmm. is people saying, I need to take control of technology. Not that technology is a bad thing, mm -hmm. but that somehow we feel that it has taken over. Yeah. Um, what are you thinking about that? Well, I'm struggling with it like everybody else. Yeah. I mean, we're the guinea pig generation. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, in my lifetime, there was only the analog world. And now at a certain point in the late 90s, I think, you know, really for most of us, it became digital with the World Wide Web and, you know, all of that. Uh, so this is a gigantic experiment that's never happened before on the planet. Uh, everybody who's born more recently, they've only experienced the digital world, yes. not the analog world, yes. at least talking about our country. Uh, so we do. I, I agree with you. I think we need to let that be, in some sense, uh, an object of attention. We need to hold that in awareness and see how much the technology is improving our lives, which it certainly is doing. Yes. Uh, versus how much the technology is turning us into slaves of the technology, which it is certainly doing in a certain way, because the technology is seductive. I don't know if you've noticed that, but it can be very seductive and addictive. Mm -hmm. And after a while, between Blackberries and uh, pagers and uh, you know uh, and laptops and this and that. First of all, just let's consider the, what we used to quaintly call the work week. Yes. There's no end to the right. work week. Right. There's no beginning to it. There's no end to the work day or the <laughs> beginning of the work day. Mm -hmm. So we can work 24-7 everywhere. IBM brags about this in their advertisements. Right. When IBM goes digital, you know, the workplace is everywhere. Yeah, great. Except that life isn't merely working. And is that kind of what you mean also when you say, I mean, technology makes this 24-7 reality possible, but in fact our bodies, yeah. our bo just our bodies, but our bodies and our minds and our spirits aren't designed. Exactly. They are To do 24-7. And they okay. are, that's what I meant by a Stone Age body, yeah. you know, and the Stone Age mind in a Space Age world. Uh, so we have, we're, we're in a transition here. And... I'm not knocking the technology. I'm no. not saying, you know, sort of like we should go back. You know, I'm not taking a Luddite mm -hmm. position on this. Mm -hmm. I think the technology is incredibly beautiful, and it's going to get more and more and more powerful and more and more beautiful. But there are issues associated with it that have to do with um, the technology is, in some sense, getting more sophisticated than our understanding of ourselves as human beings Yes. without the technology. And what I'm saying is that the technology is going to wind up changing us as human beings, and people talk about, like, um, you know, what the future of this technology is when things will be so small that actually you'll, you know, your computers, you'll swallow it, you know, mm -hmm. and it will do things inside, like, you know, you'll swallow your doctor or whatever, and they'll <laughs> right. fix you from the inside, or, right. you know, nanotechnology and all of that kind of stuff, and then robotics, and, you know, we're moving towards a very strange, you know, world in some ways, at least so far that we don't know what it's going to be. Mm. But one piece of it hasn't developed yet, and that is our intimacy, our deep understanding of what it means to be human. We're still in 
you know, uh, our infancy as a human species. Mm. And before we start to talk about wet-dry interfaces where you'd start putting chips inside of the skull, for instance, to uh, regulate certain things or upgrade our memory or whatever it is that might seem so attractive, that we really, in the next few generations, need to reclaim the full dimensionality of our humanity, uh, much of which is going to be, in some sense, discovered globally on a massive scale for the first time. There have always been people who have, in some sense, recognized that, and we usually call them saints. But uh, what if everybody's a saint? What if everybody is the Buddha? What if everybody is Jesus in the incarnation of the loving heart, the sacred heart? What then? And you see, I think that's something that we really need to uh, contemplate because uh, everybody is actually Buddha according to Buddha's teachings, at least in potential. Everybody is, you know, Jesus, at least, you know, Mm. in potential. Mm. And the recognition of that as all being a flowering of the divine or the sacred, whatever language you want to impose upon it, uh, we haven't really done that yet as a species. We haven't owned lived up to the name Homo sapiens sapiens. And Mm. my point is that maybe the technology will be a kind of mirror in which we can look and remind ourselves that there are aspects of being human and being analog that we don't want to give up to machines when they get smart enough to, uh, Mm. you know, maybe pretend that they have feelings or look like they have feelings or or they're so bloody faster at calculations and computations than we are that we begin to feel insecure Uh or inadequate in the face of our computers. You know, when you you talk about it this way and when, you know, when you talk about us being the first generation and being in kind of a new, an experiment, um, it brings me back to something we were talking about early on, um, just a, a core Buddhist insight that we, we have to have a compassionate relationship with um, those things that are difficult, right, with our fear. Yes. But also also I'm thinking with the stress uh, that this moment of rapid change, this new territory creates just by virtue of Absolutely. being new territory. Absolutely. And, you know, this is far too serious a matter to take too seriously. So it really has to be leavened with humor and a sense of humor. <laughs> okay, and and really, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I'll i sound like I'm joking if I say I'm so serious that, you know, uh, I'm serious about this, but but I'm, it, it's too serious to take that seriously. You know, so, yeah. Keep going. You know, it's 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 an ongoing engagement, so to speak. It's like we're part of this experiment, mm-hmm. and and since it's happening, uh, in a sense, I think all of us, to whatever degree, and each in our own unique way, are being called upon to find out who we are, and to live that authentically in the service of this world not just for our own particular small-minded gain or benefit. And I see that happening, you know, on a very, very vast scale. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, obviously nobody can understand fully what's going on at the moment. But the very idea that mindfulness would be of interest now as broadly as it is in the society and that, you know, uh, that interest 
the number of papers with the word mindfulness in the title in the scientific literature is going exponential, mm -hmm. and the amount of funding that is funding research in mindfulness, the NIH is going right, exponential, and the fact that, and the fact that schools, it's now medical education is training to encompass this. It's also being brought into the military. Mm -hmm. It's being brought into business. Mm -hmm. It's being brought into professional sports, and mm -hmm. I mean, there no. Third, from the perspective of 30 years ago, this is basically inconceivable, and yet it's already happened. And I think it's part of a much larger phenomenon where maybe as a species, because of all the crises we're facing, we are in some sense tapping into that deep human capacity for waking up at the last moment right. and, and doing something doing something right, and you these know? resources uh, that, in music. fact, have been cultivated in places exactly. for thousands of exactly. years. Exactly. And that, learning uh -huh. how to tap into them in a big way. And, you know, it occurs to me also, I mean, <clears throat> let's say I'll start this from a little another direction, you know, thinking about the stress that is created by technology um, along with the advancement. Um, I was having a conversation with someone who's involved in the field of neuroeconomics. Have you heard of that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Yes. And... So one of the things they talk about is that there is a natural human inclination to empathy. Um, but one of the things that dampens that is stress. I mean, they can see that happening mm, in the brain. Right. And they can run different scenarios yeah. where they stress people out and see how they behave. And and I, I kind of connected some dots, and I don't know if this is just me, but I think one of the questions we're asking ourselves in this culture right now is, it seems like all along the line, not just at the top levels of finance, but all along the way, people were making decisions that were irresponsible to yes. themselves or to others, you know, mortgage yeah. lenders. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and it made me wonder if um, one of the consequences of, of, this, of the, technolo the rapid technological advance just of the last 10 years um, mm. is this 24-7 uh, war reality which is very stressful for us as human beings, and that, yes. and that, and that possibly just that—that that the stress of this culture that we've created so quickly—let us, you know, had this very real and devastating implication of being, of making us make less moral decisions, um, and then hmm. real economic consequences. And in that, well, sense, I think <laughs> you may have something there. I mean, I, I, I still think that um, that actually greed played a huge amount. Uh, a huge role in it, mm -hmm. that it was just like free money uh, right, right. and uh, wasn't so stressful. I mean, they were creating stress down the road for other people, but not so much for themselves. Yes, they're leading uh, a stressful life, but it can also be, and this is one of the dangers and why it's so addictive, is it's intoxicating. You begin mm -hmm. to feel powerful, mm -hmm. sometimes extremely powerful, because you can make so many decisions in such a rapid uh, sequence and then see almost immediately the positive consequences of them for yourself. And it's the kind of thing where you really can get addicted to it. And and I think then you lose all sense of moral judgment, compassion, okay. uh, even, you know, just clarity and uh, become sort of uh, entrained into a mind state that really is deluded. And w whether it's, you know, I think that these things are so complicated. There are many, many different ways to describe this unfolding. Uh, I think, to come back to your original point, mm -hmm. we're at a point, and I think the people in the White House have a sense of that, that it is possible 
to use this horrific situation that we find ourselves in in so many ways as a tr profound opportunity for reminding ourselves as a country of what's most important. Right. And that would include, of course, putting checks and balances in place. The whole, our whole country is predicated on checks and balances. <laughs> we don't have a king or a queen. We have three branches of government, and they're supposed to balance each other. And what the, the, the Congress did was systematically undo a whole bunch of checks and balances mm -hmm. under the pressure of huge lobbying interests so that as I said, this sort of thing would regulate itself. It's like the, you know, the foxes in the chicken coop. You know, they'll take care of all the regulation, right. and you see what happened. And this has happened time and time and time again in history. And I think we have a very short attention span and even shorter memory. So the real challenge here is, as you posed it at the beginning, are we going to learn something that's going to really set us on another path, or will it just be another recycle of the same old same? Right, and I think that's that's a big question, isn't it? And I suppose that's that's where these these kinds of um, but that's where mindful leadership you see, yes, comes in. Can you make know? a difference. It's like you say, mm -hmm. Obama seems like a much more mindful president than any mm -hmm. president we've had so far, at least that I've had exposure. Yeah, that's to. interesting, and isn't it? That's you know, context. and so who yes. knows what that will mean? I mean, mm -hmm. mindful doesn't necessarily mean perfect. Doesn't even necessarily mean great. You know, mm -hmm. it just means that there's some degree of awareness and and mm -hmm. and sort of a deep. Understanding of interconnectedness and that is dealing with and emotional intelligence, mm -hmm. thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is in fact uh, being brought to bear on these very, very intractable problems that once the system, you know, gets into this kind of atrial fibrillation, it's very, very hard to get it stabilized. Let me ask you this. You, you've talked about this kind of thing and worked on the basics of mindfulness at places like Google or MIT, or you worked with the U.S. rowing team, um, mm -hmm. congressional staff, uh, bus other businesses. Um, is there, uh, what do I want to ask, is there a, do you, do you, are there different questions or different approaches that you need to take in these different kinds of settings to talk about this? Um, uh, are there different challenges question. in different realms in talking about this or getting this across? I think that there are certain ways in which you have to be very, very attuned to who you are speaking to, who mm -hmm. you are working with in terms of an audience. So, uh, And then there are other principles that are really more universal. And, you know, it's just as I was saying about the stress reduction clinic, everybody has a body. So whether you're in Congress or in the White House or in prison, you still have a body. You're still breathing. So there are some basic places. that, we, And you still have a mind, and the mind is usually out of control and addicted and reactive and, you know, all of that. So there's certain fundamental ways in which no matter what your status in life is, uh, we ground it in the actuality of uh, the here and now. You know, it gets pretty basic. But if you're going to be working with Olympic rowers... You have to frame it so that it makes sense for them. Otherwise, they won't practice or mm -hmm. they won't understand what you're trying to uh, offer as a kind of potentially uh, competitive edge. The same would be true if you're dealing with uh, economists or if you're dealing with business leaders or whatever it is, that it has to be framed in such a way that it's 
in their language. And, and very often in business, for instance, stress is not the primary language. People who are leaders in business, <coughs> excuse me, they, they're not that interested in stress. They're interested in innovation. They're mm. interested in creativity. They're interested in authentic leadership. I, I loved uh, something you said at Google that uh, that the key to creativity is cultivating more spaciousness in the mind. Mm. Well, actually, um, there's plenty of spaciousness in the mind already. I, I probably misspoke or wasn't really uh, <laughs> thinking about about it. But the spaciousness is already in the mind. We can't cultivate it. What we can cultivate is. Uh, intimacy with it Mm. so that we actually know how spacious and how luminous and how creative and how reliable our own minds are. Mm. Now, that'd be good to start learning in kindergarten. Right, right, right. And then that that does raise a question about um, education and how um, some of these, as you said at the very beginning, very common sense ideas might become known to people, become accessible. And, you know, you wrote your book um, on mindful parenting, I think, before the invention of Facebook and Twitter. So, <laughs> right? I That's mean, true. parents and educators have a whole new set of challenges these days in terms of just attention. You're not kidding. You're not kidding. Uh, <clears throat> um Yes, and again, I think the children are going to wind up, going to wind up teaching us. Mm-hmm. So we have to really uh, <laughs> try to understand the world from their point of view. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, is a big challenge because we're the ones that are supposed to know everything and be the authorities. Right. And so I think one of the problems that we get into often with our children is that we are driven by a certain kind of fear that if we – don't sort of take a very, very strong stand on certain things, then uh, our children will grow up, uh, you know, not understanding certain key things having to do with ethics or morality or fair play or things like that. Right. And, uh, of course, those are very, very important. But I think sometimes we actually don't trust the inner intelligence and goodness and kindness of our children and uh, and uh, let them teach us as we also nurture and help them grow into who they actually are. Mm-hmm. This is a very, very delicate and creative dance. Every child is different. Every, you know, family is different. It continually, continually changing. But as I said, I, I see it as one of the most profound uh, spiritual practices mm-hmm. that uh, is available to us. Mm-hmm. Just Going a, to work is another one. Right. You know. Yeah, absolutely. We just got a few more minutes, and I'm aware of okay. that. Um, uh, you, you've said that you're not Buddhist, although a, a lot of what you are teaching and working with is no. I didn't. Is drawn, I, I said I'm not a Buddhist. You're not a Buddhist. All right. I, yeah. I just want. Okay, so I have I, to be very particular about that. All right. Well, what do you? And and I just wondered: is there um, are there other resources or traditions um, or ways you want to describe? describe yourself that um, self-describe yeah well you know uh, i guess one way that i've been trying to talk about mindfulness is Mm -hmm. to kind of get across the point that the problem with self-description isn't the description it's the self behind the description (laughs) and it's usually too small so yes if i say uh you know i am a buddhist the problem isn't with the buddhist 
It's with the I and who I think I am when I'm using <laughs> okay. that personal pronoun. All right. uh, I, I quote something in, um, in Wherever You Go, There You Are, which is a young woman coming home and you know, sort of disclosing to her parents after she'd gone off to college that she was a Buddhist, and it drove them insane. But then she realized that, uh, and she said this, when I'm a Buddhist, it drives my parents crazy, but when I'm a Buddha, nobody bats an eye. Mm-hmm. You know, so part of it is like um, there's a certain way in which all self-descriptions are inadequate. And so I try to stay away from them. That's why I don't use the word spiritual even. Okay. But I've got one for you because I know you're fishing for some way to nail me down. No, on no, subject. I'm not necessarily. So I'm going to give you one. Okay. okay? And I, I self-describe as a human being. All right. That's good enough for me. All right. We'll give you that. Just one and last. I, and I love it. <laughs> And I think you're pretty good at it too. Let me, just oh, one last. Um, you you spoke about your you've got you had your scientist father and your painter mother and yes. and somehow you feel that that mm, the perceived disconnect or the difference differences in 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 them made you want to reconcile and maybe made you more open to something like mindfulness. Um, and it seems to me, you know, you you poetry is clearly very important to you. You use a lot of it in your writing. Yes seems to me in your work i mean you have um what i want what i wanted to say is you know you said at the beginning that science and being a scientist and being a painter don't have much in common but in fact at some very deep levels they do have very intriguing oh absolutely intriguing. i wasn't saying they don't have much in common no, I'm, no I'm but just on, they on speak the surface different they, languages. yes but but when you yeah. um find those intriguing echoes between yes. those kinds of pursuits yeah. so then um, you find the unity you find, yeah. Do you have you come to? Would you say at this? Yeah. How would you talk at this point about that? About that unity? What that looks like? Well, you know, since you mentioned poetry, perhaps rather than talk about it in a cognitive way, I'll give you a couple of lines of poetry. Okay. Uh, some from Derek Walcott and some from um, T. S. Eliot, and leave it at that. Because All right. It's I think better to point to it rather than to try to make some definitive prose statement about it, which mm-hmm. is bound to be inadequate and incomplete. Okay. So Derek Walcott is a Nobel laureate uh, from the island of St. Lucia, Nobel laureate in literature. And uh, one of my favorite poems of his is called Love After Love. Um, and I'll just give it to you if yes, it's okay. Please. Mm-hmm. It's not very long. But it really hinges around just this issue uh, of who we are and how much we split ourselves apart. The time will come, he says, the time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to yourself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, who you have ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. So you see, that's the unif- mm. That's the unit. That's the unity. That's yes. the kind of bringing together all these different sort of fragments of self and recognizing mm-hmm. that uh, you will love again the stranger that you you know pushed away the stranger mm-hmm. your true self the stranger was yourself and then T.S. Eliot at the very very end of the four quartets in uh, Little Gidding which is the fourth of the quartets um, 
in that famous last stanza that starts, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Further down there, he uh, he gives us uh, an image and then and then ends with a final image, which is an image of unity that, you know, the thinking mind is never going to wrap its mind around completely and a beautiful way to end, I think, the greatest poem of his life. Mm. So it, picking up in the middle of the stanza, he says, quick, now. Okay, he says, not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick, now. Here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well when the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crowned knot of fire. The tongues of flame are enfolded into the crowned knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. Hmm. And the science and the art are one, and you and the world are one, and the mind and the heart are one, and the mind and the body. You get my drift. Right, right, right. So, so um, this is a very, very powerful uh, issue that you're pointing at, and mm-hmm. I think it lives inside of all of us. And that's one of the reasons that the great poets are so powerful is that they give voice to basically they and they put in words what's basically impossible to put into words, what's unspeakable. And there's an art to that that is just transcendent. Mm. And it nurtures us in ways that bring out our own luminosity and make us rise in some way into the possibility of that unity. Mm. All right. We have to quit because the studio needs, they need the studio. But I, no, I understand. absolutely that. love this. And I time. thank you so much for making this time. And um, Well, it's, it's my supreme honor to uh, be, on your, be on your show, Kristen. I think that, you know, I mean, I love the questions that you've asked and it's just been a delight for me to be in conversation. Well, with you. thank you. And I, I, I suspect that our paths will cross in person one day and mm. I look forward to I that. I hope so. Yeah. Okay. I hope so. Thank All you right. very much thank for the you. invitation. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.